Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I'm on the move today. I'm heading to Greenland, to the top of the world, to research just how important this massive Arctic island was during the Cold War and how important it remains for European and North American security today. So keep your ears and eyes open for a new podcast episode on Cold War Greenland coming soon. But if you're interested in the Cold War, then this episode is an incredible eye-opener to that period of history. You see, in November 1970, the deadliest storm in modern history set a collision course with East Pakistan, specifically a region which is the most densely populated coastline on Earth. Over the course of the next few hours, the Great Bola Cyclone would kill 500,000 people and begin a chain reaction of turmoil, genocide and war. The war that followed between 1970-71 would draw India and Pakistan, backed by the world's superpowers, into a tense standoff and the brink of nuclear war. Not only this, it would lead to the formation of the state of Bangladesh. To take us through this history, I'm joined by Scott Carney and Jason Micklian. They're the authors of a new book, Vortex, which reveals this history and details how a megastorm sparked a revolution and brought the world one step closer to nuclear Armageddon. Hi, Jason. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. We're so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, not a problem at all. It's great for you to be here, actually, because we've been trying to tee this up for a while because I've been really keen to hear more about, well, the history of how history's deadliest storm almost brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. So where should we start with this story? And if you want to go straight to the history, right, the deadliest storm that the world has ever recorded was the Bola Cyclone of 1970, which smashed into the coast of what was then East Pakistan, but is now Bangladesh. And it killed half a million people in the course of just a few hours. In the year that followed that event, this storm sort of set off this string of dominoes, which is what our book, The Vortex, is all about. Right after the storm, this lecherous, terrible president named Yahya Khan um, lost an election that was like almost definitely going to go his way, but he did such a bad time managing an aid response that it flipped the election entirely the other direction, which then he refused to adhere to. 
which then he decided he had, the only way to keep power was to start a genocide, which killed another 3 million people, which brought a Nixon and Mao into this conflict, which escalated all the way to a nuclear standoff between the United States and the USSR, whereby Nixon was about an hour from launching nukes into India over this event. So this one storm we see as an allegory for what our future might look like on this world, where we have increasingly difficult weather patterns that lead to potential political destabilization that could just end the planet. So that is the nutshell, the very, very most breezy way to talk about our book, The Vortex. Wow. Okay. Well, let's crack that nut open and dig a bit inside because it surely couldn't have been just this cyclone, this powerful storm that causes this ripple effect, this butterfly effect that almost leads to the end of the world, to Armageddon. So what is the political situation like in Pakistan in the 1970s? Yeah, great. Thanks again for having us on. I'm really, really looking forward to this uh, conversation. And this is Jason here. This is uh, one of the most important foundational uh, background questions that you just asked. Because as you say, like if a storm hits a coastline, it's not going to just automatically trigger Armageddon. There are definitely things that need to be in place in these societies. They need to be on the precipice of conflict for something like a storm to trigger a uh, war. And we absolutely had that in Pakistan at the time. So the we don't talk about it too much in the book, but of course the history goes all the way back to 1947, to partition. When the British left, they divided up the subcontinent of India into India and Pakistan, as we all know. But the really difficult part, the part that made, that, that sowed those seeds for conflict was that East and West Pakistan were physically separated by, uh, by about 1,500 kilometers. And not only that, West Pakistan had all of the political power and was run by one set of ethnic groups. And East Pakistan, of course, was run by the Bengalis and, and was Bengali majority. So over the period of a generation, West Pakistan just continued to take more and more resources out of the East and use it on their own education, their own healthcare systems, their own military, and really didn't give anything back to the East. So what at the time of partition was a relatively equitable balance of, of economies between the two got very imbalanced very quickly. And, uh, you know, I come from a peace and conflict background. So one of the things that we know that uh, is the number one precipitator of conflict is if you have very large and growing inequalities between groups. So this is, you know, of course, triggered wars all over the world. We can see this in ethnic conflicts in Africa, Latin America, Europe. Um, and, we, and we saw it here. We saw East Pakistan sinking lower and lower in terms of investment into the region, economy, uh, while West Pakistan wasn't doing that well either. But the two sides were definitely growing farther and farther apart. And that is what set the stage for a series of revolts and riots in the years preceding the Bola Cyclone. So we have a society here that is lacking resilience and is building off 25 years of growing inequality, growing hardship, and one region taking from the other. And so when this storm hits, there isn't those capabilities that would usually be in place to try and help those to stave off disease, to stave off starvation. Is that where this growing number of dead comes from? Because the storm takes 
what, half a million lives at the highest estimates? Is that what causes the death or or is the storm itself so incredibly powerful and raging that it brings in tidal waves, hurricanes? I mean, what is it that is causing all of this instability or is it just simply a mix of everything I've just said? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix of everything. But, you know, this is a 20-foot storm surge in an area which is barely five feet over sea level. So, you know, the only people who survived, and, you know, the way we tell the story is through the perspectives of the people surviving. It's narrative, not fiction, not sort of just standard history. So these are people who entire families drown in their houses, and the only way they survive is by knocking out the panels in the roof and then jumping to palm trees and then climbing up to the top of the palm trees, wherein the water is still licking their feet. And it's only the people who were able to do that, and maybe a couple who managed to get to like a three-story concrete structure in the center of the island, those are the only survivors. So we're talking islands of 50,000 people where 40,000 people died. And obviously it's a combination of wind and water and whatever else. But one of the real tragedies here, right, is that it's 500,000 people in the first days. And then after that, you have the cholera epidemic that happens when all these rotting corpses are not be able to be buried. Because, you know, if every person has to bury five people on average, that's going to be very difficult. And it took weeks to do that. And meanwhile, cholera spreads like crazy. And then you have just the national election is just two weeks after the storm hits. So this big national election happens. It actually goes the way of the Bengalis. And then this murderous, lecherous leader named Yahya Khan, who is best friends with Richard Nixon. So two of the worst people in the world, buddies. And the election doesn't go the way that uh, Yahya Khan wanted it. And then he starts killing three million people over the course of the next year with American bullets, American guns, American tanks, American aircraft. That is where, you know, the storm is just the beginning of this ripple effect that sort of accelerates our story as we go forward. All right, Scott, so there you've mentioned so many different factors that can lead and contribute to the outbreak of war between nation states or or internally as well. And of course, the almost, and thank goodness it wasn't climactic end to this history that we've kind of given away already, is that we come to the brink of nuclear war. But Jason, you mentioned your expertise in peace and conflict. All of these different contributing factors must start pulling apart the fabrics of society. And with that history of inequality between the different religious and ideological groups within the country, do we start to see a true civil war emerge? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one really important thing to remember is that any sort of disaster like this gives a political leader an opportunity. They can use it to try to bring people together, or they can use it to tear societies apart. And what we saw here was Yahya Khan's just complete uncaring for the Bengalis of East Pakistan that led to a fracture of society, which then started the dominoes of the two sides realizing, or especially the Bengalis realizing, that the West Pakistanis were never going to fight for them. They were never going to support them. And even in their most dire moment of need, they would rather let them starve or rot than help them in any way, shape, or form. Now, one of the characters we have in the book is a a meteorologist by the name of Neil Frank, who came from the National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida, to Bangladesh to try to find out exactly what had happened. Because there was a, you know, there was an assumption like, well, we had warning systems there. Why didn't uh, anyone hear about it? Why didn't people go to higher ground? And he assumed that his, uh, it was his boss's error, or it was just some bureaucratic mix-up. 
But then he, you know, he has these meetings with people in Dhaka, which was the capital of East Pakistan then. And, you know, he has a meeting with a general that just stops him cold in his tracks because the general tells him, let me tell you, Neil, that cyclone solved a half a million of our problems. So this was a West Pakistani general who was confiding to Neil that they would rather have the Bengalis dead and take over the land than have to deal with them as equal citizens. And that really opened up Neil's eyes to the true scale and scope of what the problem was here. It wasn't just someone forgetting to warn people or an incompetent uh, system for warning for, for these uh, cyclones, but it was a concerted effort from Yahya Khan all the way down through the Pakistan military, that these were not people that were worthy of saving. And frankly, a lot of them felt that the, it would be much better for the country if they were just all eradicated. That's almost unbelievable. We talk about climate inequality and, and environmental inequality around the world. But what you're saying here is tantamount to the weaponization of weather or of nature. It's, it's almost like shutting off a river to an entire section of a country so that people, you know, have no water and die of dehydration. Is that what we're saying here, that this is like a genocide via a storm? Yeah, and that's, unfortunately, this is something that isn't limited to the situation of East Pakistan in 1971. We've seen this all over the world where leaders weaponize famines or disasters in order to try to achieve political aims. You know, we saw it in Ethiopia in 1985, 84, 85. We've seen it in Myanmar. We've seen it in, in many, many places around the, the world. And you it, could argue we're seeing it today, potentially, with um, President Putin's aggressive restrictions in Ukraine and what that's doing to the African continent. Yeah, precisely. And, and the way that the resources are taken out of Ukraine, where they take out all of the grain and then use it for their own ends. Uh, if the Ukrainian people starve in the process, well, that's just a part of war, right? And this sort of mentality is one of the most challenging things to try to bring out in a book like this. And that's why we went through these sorts of stories through characters who actually lived it, to know what it's like when your society loses all of its food, as opposed to just a large number that you hear about X train cars of grain going away or, or something like that. And, and I would just add to that that, you know, this, this is something that, Peace and conflict researchers are really starting to understand better now that we finally have the data to be able to create these connections between disasters and conflict. There was a great piece that came out about a year ago by Tobias Ida, where he actually looked at con every conflict over the last 50 years, and he found that almost a third of them were precipitated by a climate disaster within seven days before the conflict. So there is a tremendous number of conflicts that are precipitated or triggered by these sorts of disasters. And one of the things that we really need to do, and we try to show this process in the vortex, is to try to stop that process where a disaster hits and then a politician uses it as an excuse for war. That's incredible. And I suppose we've seen it throughout history with volcanoes erupting in Iceland, leading to revolutions and civil wars and famines across Europe. So this is nothing new. But this history in itself is, is new to us because I've heard absolutely nothing about this. And it's fascinating that you're able to tell this through the stories of individuals and small groups who experienced it. How is it that you chose those characters? 
This is a fascinating question for a number of reasons. Like, you know, as we tell the story, right, we didn't want to tell it as normal history, which is like your normal history book of the 1971 war and the cyclone, because that book exists, hundreds of those books exist, see our bibliography. But we wanted to actually get people emotionally involved by going through the characters. So we start the book with a guy named Hafez Adin Ahmad, who was basically the Pele of Pakistan. He was the best soccer player. And, you know, he's playing against the Russians. And as he's scoring goals, every time he gets the ball, the Bengalis all cheer for him. And as soon as he passes it to his Punjabi player, everyone goes silent. And that sort of like frames that no Bengali wants to root for a Punjabi. And this allows us to tell this context without necessarily having just to tell you. We can just put you right in the moment. And we have several characters like this. There's a fisherman who ends up being swept up in the revolution, becoming a revolutionary, and then has a very dramatic finish that, you know, you got to read the book. And the international aid workers, Jason mentioned the weatherman, but also Richard Nixon and Yahya Khan and Henry Kissinger, who were all really, really important people to this. And Yahya Khan, since probably most people know Nixon and all the crazy stuff that he's about, right? Well, he was best friends with Yahya Khan, probably in the world. And it was like dictator to dictator. These two power men just really saw something in one another. And Yahya Khan is a drunkard, a former general who fought the Nazis and then learned his tactics of genocide from the Nazis. Uh, Richard Nixon and he, you know, would drink late into the night together whenever Nixon would visit Pakistan, which was two or three times. And then Yahya would also visit Washington, D.C. But one of the things about Yahya Khan, which actually we've gotten some criticisms in the international press about, is this man was a lech. Like, he ran a brothel out of the president house in Pakistan, dated the film stars of the day. And some of his major decisions happened uh, during his affairs. So... One of the climactic scenes that a lot of Indian historians are like, this is weird, is when Yahya Khan is having sex with a prostitute while the Shah of Iran is knocking on his door trying to get a meeting. And this is actually something that we've documented through multiple sources. But many people read our book and are like, oh my God, this couldn't have happened. No one's sexual libido is also so on display. They're not that bad of a person. But you know, here's the thing, is that this guy also killed three million people. He ordered a genocide. And if we look at leaders in, over the history, they have lots of these foibles, like JFK was sleeping with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson would expose himself to guests relatively frequently. Bill Clinton, I mean, we all know what Bill Clinton did. Like, it's not unusual to think that uh, leaders like this would be involved in these sort of like sordid details of their lives at the same time they're ordering mass murders. And we're able to bring this out in the book and cite some pretty awesome sources for this stuff. And, uh, and I just wanted to head off anyone who reads our book and says, this possibly couldn't happen because it seems so strange and like over the top. And yeah, history is freaking over the top. Yeah, and I would just add to it, you know, of course we have these like, you could say salacious bits in the book, but they're not just there just for titillation. Like the reason why we included some of these is for a couple of reasons. Number one, they really showed Yahya's mentality and his priorities. Like during times of great national crisis, he would rather sleep with a prostitute than see a very important regional partner who had come to visit him. Uh, likewise, he would rather hire his madam as one of his national security advisors rather than put someone competent into the position. So, you know, this all of this like sex and politics just got wrapped up as one into his mind. And that is what 
drove a lot of his decision-making as the war started to expand. It's salacious, it's, there's just unbelievable stories in there, but they had a direct political consequence as well. So that's the reason why that, that we've included them within the package of the Vortex, is because they had real impact upon the genocide and upon the war that became. And certainly also moved Pakistan towards its fundamental shift after the war, right? When you have this whoring president who's drunk all the time and the regime changes, there's a reason why uh, Pakistan went more towards Sharia law, more towards fundamental Islam. And it was sort of like he prepped the way for the world stage that we have now. Well, we all love controversy. We all love conspiracy. And, you know, you may well get a few more messages. I think you may have just compared uh, Nixon and Yahya Khan as being equal dictators, Scott. <laughs> so, um, you know, you might get a couple of tweets there. Um, sure. But... <laughs> yeah, let them come. Ah, ready. <laughs> but like you say, there is a very, very serious point to including all of this. Because am I right in thinking then, if they are that close... Does Yahya Khan then bring Nixon into the fold to try and support him at this moment of need? Yeah, as Pakistan is failing, right? So the war has gone on and it's been funded by the American military, American jets, American bullets, all of that stuff are, are, are being used in this conflict. But then India invades. India invades Pakistan because, you know, <laughs> easy way to say this is India and Pakistan are always fighting, but India is actually coming to liberate this country from a horrible genocide. And they are really the good guys. And India is a Soviet ally, and that's very critical here. Nixon, uh, Pakistan is obviously the ally with the United States at this time. And when East Pakistan is falling, um, because Yahya actually started the war, Yahya actually uh, did airstrikes against India first, which is a big tactical error, strategic error. And then his army just starts collapsing right in front of the vastly superior Indian army. And he calls out to his friends, which are Mao and Nixon, and says, we need bo American boots on the ground. We need Chinese boots on the ground to defend national sovereignty. And Mao doesn't do anything. But Nixon sends over the USS Enterprise, which is our most powerful nuclear aircraft carrier, over from Vietnam, and it makes its way into the Bay of Bengal. Meanwhile, Indira Gandhi, who's the prime minister of India, calls out to um, the Soviet allies, and they send a Soviet sub-fleet from Vladivostok. Both of these nuclear-armed fleets are basically standing off in the Bay of Bengal, and the Russians have orders to vaporize uh, the USS Enterprise and the attack vessels that are, that are surrounding it if it crosses this arbitrary red line in the sea. The only problem is that the USS Enterprise doesn't know where that line is. So this is where Vladimir Krugliakov, who's the rear admiral, says, okay, I'm gonna do the craziest thing that I can imagine to warn the Americans how deadly serious this is. Meanwhile, of course, the Enterprise has permission to destroy the Indian Air Force and use nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons if need be. What Krugliakov does, and if you're a sub commander, you know this is stupid, he, he sends three of his subs in front of the Enterprise within visual range and surfaces them in a line on that line of control, which doesn't usually happen, right? It's a stupid thing to surface your subs in front of an aircraft carrier that can instantly kill them. But he does this because he needs to warn them. And this actually stops the Enterprise in its tracks. They're sending home messages being like, well, do we fight? Do we actually start the war? Now, Kissinger says, yes, let's start lobbing nukes, because why not? That's what Kissinger does, I guess. And this standoff lasts a few hours. And the only reason we don't go hot at this point is because Dhaka falls 
to the Indian army and the Mukti Bahini rebels. This scrappy force comes in and Dhaka falls and they're like, well, nothing to fight over anymore. But we were within hours of blowing the world up. And again, just like in the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Russians saved our lives. The only reason you are listening to this podcast, the only reason you are alive right now is because some crazy Russian sub-commander pulled this tactically idiotic move of surfacing subs in front of the Enterprise. And then the happy story is, is eventually they all, everyone leaves and the USS Enterprise actually sends a, what do you call it, semaphore, the flags on the mast. They send up a note to the Russians being like, happy journeys on the way out to the Russians. I mean, that's the, that's the end of that conflict. Move over Rome, move over Greece. This month on The Ancients, we're heading to the Americas, North, Meso, and South. Join us every Sunday this August as we explore this area of the world's extraordinary distant past with leading experts. From the rise and fall of Teotihuacan to the mysterious Nazca Lines. A journey through the ancient Americas every Sunday this August on The Ancients from History Hit. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is, of course, one of the great untold stories of the Cold War. Where, you know, it's, of course, a 40-year history of a lot of close calls and, and us almost going to nuclear war. But this is one that was, uh, you know, so spectacular and so intense. We really felt it was worth 
deserving this this telling of it. And we were able to get, you know, one of the new things that we brought to it in this book was we were able to get access to a lot of the Soviet sources of the time. There have been some great books about the 71 war, Blood Telegram by Gary Bass, for example, but that was a lot from U.S. sources and, and the U.S. perspective or the Indian perspective. Whereas this one really tried to get both sides of this uh, unbelievable event, uh, and that's what we presented in the book. And the other thing, of course, is you know the your listeners might be wondering, like, well, why in the world would the United States do this? Uh, and it all comes back to this friendship between Yahya and Nixon, because before the cyclone even hit. You know, these drunkards were making this sort of like late night deal because after the 1965 sanctions, Pakistan desperately needed weapons and they couldn't buy them anywhere. And from Nixon's side, he desperately wanted to reopen diplomatic ties with China, but he didn't know anyone who could help him do it. So they each had something that the other one desperately wanted. So they came to a deal. Yahya would get a direct line into Mao and Nixon would give Yahya the guns he needed to secure his country. So this was the backdrop. And when the storm hit, Yahya was actually in China at the time trying to make this deal happen because Mao didn't want to talk to Nixon. And he needed to basically be as convincing and as gregarious and as wonderful as he could possibly be. And the storm actually helped him with that because Mao felt sorry for him and was like, okay, well, maybe... I will be willing to meet uh, Kissinger. So then instead of trying to secure a victory in the war as it went on, Yahya was spending all of his time when he wasn't partying trying to get this relationship together. Yahya was a military guy. So he saw a task, he wanted to complete it, and that's what he did. And he made this the task of his life to get Kissinger to China. And this became what Nixon and Kissinger called later, like the greatest foreign policy success. But it was all due to Yahya. Nixon and Kissinger were terrified of communists. There's a great scene in the book of Kissinger meeting his first ever communists in person. And they had guns and he's all terrified and hiding behind his security detail. And they're just smiling because they they figure the whole thing is ridiculous because he's coming on their invitation. And it's just it, it speaks so strongly to the role that Yahya played in making this happen, which is something that's almost totally uh, forgotten today. But because he did all of that, he had no control over what his troops were doing in East Pakistan. And they were the real genocidiers of this conflict. So his big mix of different interests and trying to make the China deal happen with Nixon really led to his ultimate downfall, but at the same time brought the United States into a conflict in a part of the world where almost nobody in the United States cared about 12 months before. So what you're saying here then is this vortex, this storm, has along the journey here led to a situation where we have the thawing of relations between the US and China and the opening up of China and the multipolar world we have today of growing tensions between the US, China and Russia. Because if it wasn't for that opening and for Nixon going over, then the US would not have opened up commercially and technologically to China, and it couldn't have grown so quickly as a almost peer-on-peer competitor. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. I mean, you summed it up perfectly. Uh, thank you uh, for that, that great summary. Who knows what would have happened two administrations down the line? Maybe this was inevitable that uh, China would eventually open the United States. But if you look at the actual historical record of what actually happened, we would have never had relations with China had Yahya Khan not facilitated every step of the way. 
Okay, so there's so much going on in this book and you weave it together so well. And people can check your references if they want to double check the claims that you're making here because so much of it does seem incredibly outlandish. But what is the main takeaway that we should take away from this book? Is it a lesson about great power politics? Is it a replacement case study for the Cuban Missile Crisis and how to avoid nuclear war and nuclear confrontation? And perhaps we should also give some credit to the US Navy there for not blowing up those three submarines when they had the chance out in the open. There are many other navies that I'm, I'm sure would have and, and have done similar things throughout history. Or is this a longer term lesson about climate change and the fact that as we see an increase in deadly storms year on year to the point we're now running out of names to name these deadly storms, are we going to see potentially more conflict triggered by severe climate disasters? I mean, the last thing that you, I mean, all of those takeaways are absolutely what are in our mind of when we were writing this book. You know, most importantly of those three is, of course, the climate change takeaway, is that as our future heats up, more and more storms will happen. And those don't just land on coastlines, they land on political systems. So this entire book is an allegory for what we will see in the future. And I think one of the most important things of that is that where these storms hit, you know, at that point, East Pakistan, nobody was thinking about that in America, right? It was a nothing burger. And Bangladesh still today, people are like, mm, I don't know anything about that. Who cares? I mean, that's generally the way foreign policy, at least from the United States perspective, is towards Bangladesh. But these storms hit in fragile places all over the world, and we are increasingly interconnected. We're so interconnected that one ship that goes sideways in the Suez Canal, like, bankrupts nations, right? That, that sends us into this huge economic crisis. Now, when we have these storms, it doesn't matter where they hit, because every place on Earth is an important node right now, because we are of a very fragile system. And as we get more and more future storms, we will see things like this happen. And we can't say necessarily it's going to be a cyclone. It could be a drought. It could be a fire. It could be, you know, you name it. We will have environmental consequences that, that, that create political consequences. Uh, and I think Jason also, who penned most of the summary in the, uh, the end of the book, listed, um, I think it was seven major takeaways, and this being one of the most important ones. And I would also add to that, too, is like one thing that was, you know, always in the forefront of my mind as we were writing this is, you know, as Scott said, you know, in, in Europe or the U.S., Bangladesh isn't a place that people think of as one of hope and resilience. It's one of, you know, the classic tale of, you know, the country being the basket case. Oh, it's going to be the first one to be affected by climate change. Uh, it's where all the disasters happen. And that negative narrative is something that we felt was really important to turn on its head. Because this was a period where the Bengalis of what was then East Pakistan rose up against the great powers of the world, and they won. And this is a story of their hope and resilience against all odds uh, and the creation of a new country. And, you know, it's for many different reasons. We end the book in 1972 when that hope is at its greatest. Like many things happened since then that have been tremendously challenging for the country. But this is what we really wanted to show, that this is not just this basket case of disasters. Bangladesh is a, a resilient a uh, hopeful country and one that is worth our, not just our pity, but our admiration. Well, Scott and Jason, thank you so much for your time and taking us through this fascinating history. Tell us, what is the name of the book and where can we buy it? It's called The Vortex, a true story of history's deadliest storm and unspeakable war and liberation. And you can get it on the internet, anywhere you go. You put it into Google, 
and you will get the book and, uh, you know, buy it however, however, or the libraries, you know, tell your local library to go carry our book. And, uh, you know, we are just so excited and honored to be able to share this story with your audience and the world. Well, thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks a ton. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and on TikTok also at JamesRogersHistory. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.